Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host, Simon. What happens here is uh, Callum, uh, the writer for this channel, has written me a script, which I have right in front of me here. Honestly, this one, I believe it's about an 11-year-old serial killer because we use a project management software, Callum and I, to like keep a track of everything we're making. I used to suggest all the topics myself, but Callum lately has just been suggesting absolute crackers and I've been enjoying them greatly, so... Mostly Callum just suggests things. He's like, Simon, can I make this one? And I'm like, yeah, I do know what it is, but I approve. Carry on. And that's what we have today. Uh, Although children serial killers, how cheery. Well, you're listening to a, or watching a podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, by the way, smash that like button. If you're listening on uh, podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a review. Unless you're listening on Spotify, where there are no reviews and there are no like buttons. So I guess subscribe. (laughs) Thanks, Spotify. Let's jump in. Kids can be so cruel. It's a well-worn cliche which usually refers to a bit of name-calling in the playgrounds or a game of keep-away with a backpack. What is keep-away? What is going on? I've never heard of this game. It's probably because I was left out of all this. (laughs) All the fun stuff. I was so lonely. When you start plumbing the depths of juvenile true crime, however, all that schoolyard stuff seems like, well, child's play. Here you discover exactly what our beloved little cherubs are capable of, given the right conditions. And let me confirm that their crimes can be every bit as bloody horrible as anything a grown adult can inflict. While their peers are playing with dolls and finishing up their homework, these little terrors are sharpening their favorite knives, torturing the local cats, or worse. Yeah, I mean, look, those, like, look out for future serial killer thing. Isn't it like torturing animals? What was that TV show? Um, that was really nicely made. I'm drawing an absolute blank on it where they profile the serial killers and it's got those two... I, I don't even remember it. It's got the woman from Fringe. Ah, never mind. But there's this show where they profile people. I'm like, dude, if you're torturing animals as a kid... You're going to grow up to be a right psycho. Get into therapy now. The subject of today's Casual Criminalist short is once... Callum, this is a short. Uh, Listeners, if you can't see this, this seems like a fairly substantial script. I'm not sure how short this was going to be. It was like, Callum, 15 minutes, yeah? And then they arrive. And I never. Also, I add all my own fluff, I suppose. In this short is one of the youngest murderers in the history of the UK, whose crimes will make any parent shudder. But mainly, this episode is for all you 30-something singletons out there. The next time someone asks you why you don't have kids, raise your finger to their mouth, sit them down, and recount the story of Mary Bell, the 11-year-old serial killer. Oh, God. (laughs) I have a kid who's a little over one years old. I hope they don't become a serial killer. That would kind of be a bummer. The murder of Martin Brown. Also, because I I know you don't want to blame the parents, but look, if you... And I don't want to say that like every person who's a psycho, because obviously there's mental aspects as well, and maybe some of it's just how you're born. But it's like, yo, there's definitely going to be a correlation between criminals and like the quality of the parenting or something like that. So if your kid, if my kid becomes a serial killer, people are going to be like, Simon, what did you do wrong? (laughs) I don't want that. Don't do that, kid. It's the evening of Saturday, the 25th of May, 1968. The parents of a four-year-old named Martin Brown are starting to get worried because their little boy hasn't come home yet. Martin and his family lived in a working-class neighborhood in Scotswood, Newcastle, in the northeast of England. This was back in the days when it was normal to let kids roam the neighborhood from a young age because apparently stranger danger wasn't invented until the 1990s. Little Martin was in the habit of heading out on his own to play with friends, coming back home in the late afternoon for tea. That's what we call dinner for all our non-Brit listeners. Well, I mean, we also call dinner dinner, 
don't we Callum? Tea's like at four o'clock where you have, you know, a cup of tea and some biscuits or something. Um, I don't know. Does, do people really do that? My nan used to do that. Used to have tea with my nan. And I think she would also call dinner tea. This is all very confusing. Why can't we just agree on this, on some words, British people? Also, it's been a long time since I lived in the UK, so I kind of forget this stuff. His parents didn't think they had any reason for worry on that sunny weekend. All the local kids knew each other and would generally look out for the younger ones among them. As things turned out, it was some of those local kids who ended up finding Martin's body just one day after his disappearance. And there, that that is the point. Everybody, you know, I like to point out where this got dark quickly. Well, it's in the sixth paragraph today. So I think we're in for a bit of a rough ride today, folks. Martin had died in an abandoned house not far from his home. Two boys from the neighborhood had been playing there when they came across the body and two girls joined them soon after. They reported what they'd found and Martin's parents were understandably devastated. The police had little to offer them by way of consolation or explanation. When they inspected the body, they found no serious injuries to suggest the boy died violently. There was only a small amount of blood on his face. Near the body was an empty bottle of painkillers, suggesting that Martin had somehow got his hands on the pills and accidentally overdosed. That was enough for the police to rule the death as accidental, even though nobody could explain how Martin had acquired the pills in the first place. Let me remind you, this was 1968, and forensic science was very much a thing. It makes you wonder why the police didn't bother with any of that fancy-pants toxicology stuff that we've always talked about on the show. Immediately, I'm thinking, well, he ate the pills, didn't he? So, is there any reason to do that? What we might want to investigate is was he forced to eat the pills did someone like shove them down his throat or something but maybe there's some foreshadowing although to be fair i've been to newcastle before in some parts the locals still think cameras steal their souls (laughs) it might just be a while in the uk if you're from the south i'm from the south we kind of you know there's a little bit of friendly banter between the south and the north of the uk (laughs) i'm gonna guess with this i don't know where callum's from actually um but i'm gonna guess that he's probably from the south it might be a while before they fully make it to the 20th century. Also, I had a friend who went to university in Newcastle, and we used to go, we used to go visit him, you know, once or twice a year, me and a friend I went to university with. And uh, I was walking on the street, and some, I can't even remember what he said, but some guy asked me for a cigarette in some northern slang. I had no idea what he was saying, because he had a super strong accent, and he used all these, like, um, slang words that i didn't understand it's like they speak a different language you go to scotland's even more confusing regardless there were plenty of reasons to be suspicious perhaps the most (laughs) the camera's stealing the souls oh let's go back to the horror perhaps the most glaring was the incident at martin's nursery school it was broken into and vandalized several weeks after his death someone had smashed up the furniture and thrown tables around the classroom when the police came to investigate, they found four scrappily written, handwritten notes claiming that Martin's death was not an accident. One read, I murder so that I may come back. And another said, we did murder Martin Brown. I mean, this could just be kids. Like, I mean, throwing a ta- tables around, definitely something I never did at school. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Those are slightly strange things for a bunch of four-year-olds to draft up with their crayon. Oh, they're four. Okay. I mean, it could be older kids messing around. I mean, in a really horrific way. I think I didn't know it. There were no murders when I was at school. None of no one in my school, as far as I'm aware, was murdered. And I think, like, even if you were really into pranks and messing around and you know being a bit naughty or whatever, I don't think we'd ever have gone that far. Uh, so it was clear that they had been left behind by whoever trashed the classroom. The cops must have had their top detective pulling a 24-hour shift, staring endlessly at the notes on his pinboard, wondering, what does it all mean? All they had was 400 admissions of murder placed inside the classroom of a child who died mysteriously. Who could have possibly known it meant he was murdered? Not the Newcastle police, anyway. They decided it actually had nothing to do with the crime. Apparently, the kids of Scottswood had a pretty dark sense of humor, as the police just wrote off the affair as an act of juvenile vandalism. Look, I mean, 
I, was, I'm, I did that same thing myself, but I'm not a police officer responsible for investigating this case. And I'm not saying that, they, you know, at the end of all these things, and it turns out that it was just juvenile kids being juveniles, but you're a police officer. You should at least look into it a little bit. In my day, we used to just set fire to wheelie bins. Oh, I know I'm going off on a lot of tangents today, but a friend of mine from university, he, uh, he's a very smart chap and he got like an internship uh, over the summer at some big American university doing some big science stuff. And I remember, I think we were, uh, we were, I think we were living together in a, in a house at the, at that time. And he was saying how he was applying for it. And it was an absolute nightmare to get a visa because he had a criminal record. <laughs> because when he was a kid, he, he set fire to a, a trolley, like a, I think Americans call them carts, the thing you push around a grocery store. It was full of newspapers and he just set it alight for a laugh. He got arrested, got a criminal record. <laughs> and it was still following me around like he was 19, 20 years old, trying to get a, a, to get a visa to go do an internship at some big university. However nonchalant the police might have been, Martin's grieving family still held some reservations about the cause of death, you know, because all of the written messages explicitly stated he was murdered. What's more, while they were preparing for the little boy's wake in the days after his body was found, they received a visitor to the door. This was little Mary Bell, a neighborhood girl who just turned 11 on the day Martin's body was found. Apparently, she hadn't heard the news. She was asking to see Martin. June, the heartbroken mother, had to explain to Mary that Martin had passed away, doing her best to explain it in a way that wouldn't upset or frighten her. Wait, isn't Mary Bell the title of this episode? So she's, is she the murderer? She's 11. Good lord. Um, also, we mentioned previously on an episode of Casual Criminalist, uh, I think I we were talking about a young kid who committed a crime, and I said the age of criminal responsibility, I think, was 12. It's actually 10. So, Mary, you can be, I mean, you're not going to go to prison for the rest of your life, you're, but you'll go to like a, it's not still called a borstal, is it? Or wherever naughty kids go. Juvenile something or other. Look, prison for kids is what I'm guessing at. She's going to prison for kids. Hopefully. Maybe. But then Mary clarified, no, she didn't want to play with Martin. She knew he had died. All she wanted to do was see his body. Jean was horrified. She told Mary to stay the hell away and shut the door in that creepy little corpse hunter's face. Yes, also, I feel maybe I need to clarify. In the UK, we don't look at the... I've never seen a dead body in my life. I've been to funerals. It's always a closed casket. And not because... Uh, someone's been in some horrible car accident and they don't have a face anymore it's just because we don't like looking at dead bodies like in the uk we don't go look at the 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 corpse sitting there we find that weird like it's just not really done what she didn't know was that this wouldn't be the first time mary had seen martin's body she had been one of the girls who'd arrived after the two local boys found him in the first place the other girl was norma joyce bell who was no relation despite their matching surnames although the gene pool up north is pretty small callum you're being savage take Taking it too far, the poor northerners, but true. So you're already aware that this episode isn't called Mary Bell, the little girl who liked looking at coffins, so I'll stop beating around the bush. When the two girls went to the abandoned house on the 26th, they had actually been returning to the scene of Mary's crime. She had lured Martin there the day prior, promising him sweets. Once inside, she strangled the little boy to death with her bare hands. She was just 10 years old at the time. The next day, she had told Norma, herself just 13, what she had done and took, the, and took her to the crime scene to prove it. When Mary returned to school the week after, she started bragging to to her classmates about her crime. Kit, this is so messed up. What are you up to, Mary? However, she was a renowned BS merchant, so like the police, her classmates just wrote it off as a bit of childhood make-believe. And let's return to the police for a second. Mary had essentially committed the perfect crime, meaning Newcastle's finest had been outwitted by a killer who wasn't even old enough to buy cigarettes. What happened next, though, would make everyone start paying a bit more attention to the boasting of this troubled little kid. 
I think, uh, does Troubled really cover it there, Callum? <laughs> she murdered someone and then bragged about it. The murder of Bran Howe. It's now several months after Martin Brown had been laid to rest and several weeks since Mary and Norma broke into the nursery school. The first crime had gone basically undetected despite their very best efforts, so the two girls started plotting an even more severe act of violence to follow it. On the 31st of July 1968, the two girls went up playing together. They came across a little boy wandering around the streets. This was three-year-old Brian Howe. What is going on? He's three years old and he's just wandering the streets? I get like, stranger danger wasn't a thing into the 90s. And don't think that's because there were no predators out there. It's just because people were less aware of the predators. But it was like the past was the better. Do you remember like the 1950s, the glorious time? You could play outside in the street and not have to worry. It's like, no, no, no. There were still dangers. People just didn't worry about them as much. It's like kids were still getting kidnapped and stuff. It's just, you always remember the past It was worse. You might, you might not like the present, but the past was worse, almost always, except for 2020 and 2021. 20, uh, COVID sucks. Yes, kids as young as three were let out alone those days. I'm sure your grandparents will say it was a safer time when nobody had to lock their doors and nothing bad ever happened. Yes, that's sarcasm from Callum right there. But of course, that's all fantasy. The past was just as awful as the present. Uh, this is one thing about when you don't read the scripts ahead. Uh, probably even more so. Case in point, on that day, Martin, Mary and Norma led the toddler out to a piece of wasteland overgrown with weeds. They reached a spot hidden from sight by a scattering of concrete blocks. It was here that Mary strangled little Brian to death. Mary, you absolute psycho. After the deed was done, the two girls uh, left like nothing had happened and waited for some uh, of the infamy that they apparently craved. When Brian's panic family sent out word that he was missing, Mary and Norma even offered to help his older sister go looking. They wandered around the neighborhood together, at one point walking through the scrubland where the girls knew the boy's body lay. When his sister suggested checking among the concrete blocks, Mary told them there was no chance of finding him in there, so they continued on. When Brian's body was eventually found, there was no chance of the police ruling his death accidental. Fair warning, everyone already struggling with how heartbreaking or horrible this is should skip about 10 seconds forward. A pause? If you want to, you could do the whole Hey Siri thing. Click ahead 10 seconds. Uh, the little boy had the letter M carved into his chest. His hair had been cut off in clumps and his genitals had been mutilated. Good Lord, he was three years old, guys. What the f***? Thankfully, there wasn't a bottle of paracetamol to throw the canny Geordie cops off the scent. This time, they admitted that yes, someone had most probably killed this kid. What gave it away, guys? What possibly gave it away? Given the gruesome state of the body, they assumed a sexual predator was to blame and started interviewing the local kids to find out if any strange man had been spotted in the area. Investigation and arrest. The community was understandably terrified. Martin Brown's family were informed that their son's death might not have been an accident after all. Oh, so that's what the handwritten murder note and nursery murder graffiti meant. I feel like we've cracked the Zodiac cipher. The police were now on the hunt for a potential serial killer, but the murderer they wanted looked nothing like they expected. Rather than a creepy middle-aged gent with a dodgy mustache and a transit van, it was a girl who wasn't yet out of primary school. The detectives brought in both Mary and Norma to ask them if they had noticed anything strange on the day of the murders. All in all, they interviewed more than 1,200 of the local kids, and more than a few of them had mentioned the strange behavior of these two girls and accounted the public confessions and all that stuff. In addition, Brian's parents reported seeing Mary on the day of the funeral. She was watching the procession leaving their house while laughing and rubbing her hands together. Oh my god, what? Mary! Mary, I know we've already established you as a total 
crazy. What is going on with you? You're like an 11-year-old supervillain. When Norma was brought into the interview room, she could barely contain her excitement at the mention of the murders. She smiled when she told what had happened, but didn't offer up any useful details. Treating the murder of a three-year-old like a joke was strange enough, but Mary was acting even stranger. When detectives quizzed her on her schoolyard boasting, she wouldn't give them a straight answer. Eventually, she opened up a little, telling them that she had actually seen someone with Brian Howe on the day of his murder. A local eight-year-old boy was playing with him near the wasteland. As she walked by the two of them, she even saw the older boy hit the toddler in the face. There was just one problem with that version of events, though. The boy Mary accused had actually been at the airport on the day of the murder. What's more, Mary had curiously mentioned one thing which she had no right knowing. She told them that the boy was holding scissors. The details of the murder hadn't been released to the public yet. The only people who knew Brian's body had been mutilated with scissors were the police and his killer. Yeah, I mean, normally I, I'd, you know, make fun of the person who committed this crime because it's like, you're an idiot. Come on. You're terrible at crime. But Mary's 11. So she that's enough of a she's 11. As if that wasn't incriminating enough, Norma had finally stopped giggling long enough to elaborate on the rumors surrounding her and Mary. She told the police that Mary came to her the day after the first boy went missing and admitted the murder. She had described the feeling of strangling someone to death and said that she enjoyed it before taking Norma to see the body. Mary denied it all, calling Norma a liar. After a time, she admitted to being there when the second boy was killed, but asserted that Norma was the one who actually ended his life. Anyone with young kids will recognize this as the exact same game every little one plays when they get in trouble with their friends, just with some somewhat higher stakes. And at any rate, it seems like both of them went back later with the scissors to deface the body. Forensic analysis revealed that the M carved into the chest actually started as an N before being modified. Yes, um, also I believe, I'm not certain, but if this was, let's just assume they're adults and it's present day, obviously I'm not sure of the law in the 1960s, they would both be guilty of murder because uh, whoever did it, the other one went along with the crime and knew that uh, is it, would it be grievous bodily harm would be committed so they'd both be guilty of murder I'm not certain of that it's been a long time since I studied that stuff um, but because it's some sort of gang thing so like to, to get people you know if you're in a gang and you foresee that someone else is going to murder or commit GBH then you'll also be guilty of the crime to stop gangs I think it's been a long time anyone in the comments go feel free to correct me on that in the end, though, both girls were arrested and both were charged with murder. Eventually, though, Mary confessed that she had been the one who actually killed both of the kids while Norma stood on the sidelines. Norma was eventually let off the hook as a bystander rather than a perpetrator, but I hope someone in the court system hooked her up with a psychiatrist regardless. Oh my god, yes. Please, yes. I mean, not to question the wisdom of a judge of the British Crown and an esteemed jury of our citizens, but if Norma had carved her first initial into the body, I'm pretty sure that that in itself is a crime. Maybe we can get some legal experts to look into the matter, but I'm 99% certain it's not cool to cut corpses with scissors. Yeah, there's got to be some, like, desecrating the dead or something, right? Whatever the case, it would be Mary who bore the brunt of the consequences in court. Mary's home life. Now, I'm sure you can imagine that the tabloids had a field day with this one when it went to trial. The only thing they love more than sports and gossip are stories about killer children. As far as they were concerned, this was a classic case of a bad seed, a young girl who was evil by nature, rotten to the core. But we here at Casual Criminalists consider ourselves something of an anti-tabloid. Good, the tabloids are the worst. Let's The news in general is the worst. And it's just become, I feel, I don't want to be, you know, I rally against people like, oh, everything was better in the past, but I do feel like news journalism was a little bit better 
before the 24-hour news cycle, before, you know, clickbait headlines. It's just all these days, isn't it? As far as they were concerned, you don't come here for me to spew some fire and brimstone and condemn the wicked of the world to hell. That's what my upcoming channel is for, The Erase Evangelist. <laughs> Instead, people would be, because I have so many, I've got so many, if you're just listening to this and you have no idea who I am, you're just like, this guy does this casual criminalist podcast. I like nine other YouTube channels and podcasts and stuff. So it's not people will be like, hey, Simon is going to start this. He's going to start the irate evangelist. I'm not. Don't worry. It's just a joke. Or is it? Instead, we understand that monsters aren't born, they're made, usually in tragic circumstances beyond their own control. Perhaps it's easier to dismiss the worst criminals of born evil rather than face up to the ways that society collectively failed them. Yes, but also, there is certainly going to be a, a genetic element. Like we talked about, you know, there's going to be people who are more prone to some things than others. I don't think it's all uh, nurture. Some of it's going to be nature. I'd guess more nurture, but... Early trauma can have devastating effects in later life, and Christ, it's hard to imagine a more traumatic young life than Mary's. It started with the rather depressing episode of her birth. Mary's mother was a teenage prostitute, only 16 years old, when she gave birth to her. She had no idea who the father was, and amazingly for her age, this wasn't her first child. Some reports state that Betty ordered the midwife to take that thing away from me when her newest bundle of joy was born. Her attitude hardly improved as the years went on. Mary's older sister once had to go recover her from another woman's house because her mother had tried to give her away. The woman who took her in had been unable to have children of her own and was desperate to adopt. Still, when Mary's sister came knocking, she readily returned her to where she belonged. I don't know, it sounds like she'd probably be better off with just about anybody else. All things considered, this was probably a terrible turn of events for Mary, missing out on her chance at a home where she might have actually been truly wanted. Even if the other woman had been an awful mother, she would have been a hundred times better than a biological one and career criminal Billy Bell, the stepfather from whom she took her name. Neighbors noticed that Mary was a particularly clumsy child, prone to falling down the stairs and even one time falling out of a window. In another accident, she swallowed a huge dose of sleeping pills and had to be rushed to hospital. How do you? I, I, I guess kids are kids. They can, they can do it. I'll be like, we have, to, you know, as a kid, as as a kid, as having a kid, you got, there's all this childproofing and stuff. You got to be so careful because you just be like, look, look away for a second. It's like, what is that in your mouth? <laughs> How did that get in your mouth? And what is it? Open your mouth now. <laughs> really, her mother was the one behind the vast majority of these misfortunes. Oh, brilliant. Well done. Whether or not she was actually trying to end Mary's life is up for debate. Some psychiatrists would diagnose Betty with a kid condition called Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which I believe I know because of the TV show House MD. Munchausen's is where someone wants attention from doctors, and Munchausen's by proxy is going to be where they use someone else, like a relative or a child, to get attention on them from doctors. Munchausen syndrome is when a person feigns illness or injury or eventually intentionally induces it purely for the sympathy and attention it gains them. Ah, so not just from doctors, but the sympathy in general. The same symptom by proxy, as you probably guess, is when someone else does this to someone close to them. Perhaps Betty was inflicting misery on her daughter because she was addicted to the soothing words of her friends and neighbors, or perhaps it was really just simple sadism. That's not the worst of it, though. In later years, Mary revealed that her mother had actually forced her to work as a prostitute from a young age. Good lord, what is this? It's never been explicitly backed up by anyone who knew her back then, but if the story is true, it could have begun when she was as young as four years old. What is going on? One can only imagine the kind of psychological trauma that would cause a kid. Jesus Christ. It's also reported that when she was around that age, Mary watched one of her friends was ran over and killed by a bus. 
Perhaps this planted the seed, which led to her fascination with death in the years that followed. This is super intense. By the time she reached double digits, Mary had already suffered more than most people endure in a lifetime. Unfortunately, without anyone to save her from that environment or help repair the damage it caused, she turns to inflicting the same pains on other children, a desperately twisted way of reclaiming the power which had been so violently taken from her for years. Yeah, this is something, I mean... The not having, you know, this is so much psychological trauma. And it's like, we, I don't know how it is elsewhere in the world, but in the UK, like mental health services are super underfunded compared to like, you break your leg, they're going to fix you. You know, the NHS is great and it will heal you. But the like psychological stuff is not properly budgeted for. There's not enough money going into it today. And I can't imagine that. I can't imagine what it was like back in the 1960s. In May 1968, Mary was present when a three-year-old fell off the top of an air raid shelter in Scotswood, suffering broken bones. Not long after, several mothers from the local area reported that the girl had tried to choke their children while they were out playing. Mary got off with a light warning, which soon led us to the events that had you losing your faith in, faith, faith in humanity for the past 20-ish minutes. Prison and Life After Mary and Norma went to trial for what they had done. On December the 17th, less than six months after the death of Brian Howe, Norma was acquitted while Mary was convicted of manslaughter. Manslaughter? <laughs> Come on, that's murder. Her defense argued that she could not reasonably be held fully responsible for her actions on account of her age and the fact that psychological evaluation showed signs that she was, she was a psychopath. So the chance charges were downgraded and Mary received the most British-sounding sentence imaginable being detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. This essentially means you're in for indefinite imprisonment until old Queen Liz decide that she fancy letting you out, or more likely the prison service that acts in her name. Yeah, everything in the UK, uh, if you're a criminal case, it's uh, you, so it'd be like Whistler and R, which stands for Regina, which stands for Queen, so it'd be like you versus the Queen. The Queen isn't there, it's just the justice system acts on her behalf. It's a weird and interesting quirk. It turned out not to be as bad as it sounded for Mary because she only ended up serving a little over 11 years behind bars with a hiatus nine years in due to a short-lived jailbreak. So she was 20 and she broke out a good lord. Those quick with child-level maths will have worked out that this made Mary 23 at the time of her release, meaning that she had her whole life still ahead of you. If that makes you angry, considering that she took two young lives away, I'd encourage you to think about the whole context. This was an incredibly sick and miserable young girl who needed medical help more than anything. Yes, I don't believe that in that case, I mean, what she did was horrific. Like, I mean, losing faith in humanity, horrific. But she was 11 years old, and you can't, I don't, just a very quick judgment here, but I don't really think it's moral to lock someone who's done that up for the rest of their lives. I know there was an interesting article, it might have been in some magazine like Wired, probably not Wired, but one of these, you know, magazines that has this long form piece of journalism that are often quite interesting about life without parole in the United States and how kids had committed crimes, bad crimes, horrible crimes, but they were sentenced to life without parole. So you are in prison until you die, which is super intense. And I don't think in this case I would want that for Mary. She needs help. She's a psychopath, which, you know, I don't know. She always needs to be looked at, but I don't think she should spend the rest of her life in prison. And I don't think, God, that's so hard to say, but what if it was your kid who was killed? Because I'm like, I don't think I'd want that. But then I think about my kids and I'm like, mm, maybe I would want her to go to prison forever. Well, good news. This is the casual criminalist where we look at cases. It's not the, the moral judgment kid criminalist. That would be a terribly named show. Let's move on. 
However, the judge at her sentencing lamented, It is a most unhappy thing that in all the resources of this country, it appears there is no hospital available which is suitable for the accommodation of this girl. So Mary was shipped off to an all-boys facility, where it was reported by the BBC that she had been at the center of a sex and pornography scandal, hardly the environment that a mentally ill child needs. So she was moved to a suitable juvenile prison in Cheshire and several other facilities afterwards. By the 1980s, her psychiatrist ruled that Mary had been cured of her violent conditions and was fit to re-enter society. Society, but the opinions of some fancy university folk weren't going to make this fly with the tabloids. Well, who cares? Goddamn tabloids. Leave it alone. Despite the fact that Mary's release was subject to strict observation and terms, the papers were loath to let her off the hook with just 11 years. The authorities did their best to avoid a media circus by giving the young woman a new identity to live under, but that only delayed the inevitable. When a vulturous reporter puts their mind to it, there's no ethical violation too great. As if you need a proof of that fact, oh boy, we didn't. <laughs> Uh, tabloid journalism. Oof. But for years, the papers allowed Mary's mother to turn a pet pretty profit from the tragedy, selling stories which often included letters and notes she claimed were written by her daughter. And the time the Paris and by the time the parasitic press found Mary herself, she wasn't the only one. Uh, whose safety was at stake. Mary had given birth to a daughter on the 25th of May 1984. The exact same day she had taken the life of a child 16 years prior, she, would brought, she had brought her own into the world. Mother and child soon had to flee from their home when an investigative reporter tracked them down. After uprooting their lives and moving to a new town, the family managed to live in peace for 14 years before the papers found them again. At this point, Mary's teenage daughter had no idea about her mother's past. It wasn't until the news vans and reporters descended upon their street en masse that she had to explain to her, who she, to her daughter who she really was and what she had done. They ended up fleeing the house as well, covering their heads with bedsheets in an attempt to prevent their faces from being broadcast to the public. Smart move. The people of Britain were worked up into a frenzy over the case each time Bell resurfaced. Her story had left such a black mark in the memories of a whole generation that some thought she might be subject to mob justice even after all the time that had passed should she or her daughter's face become known. Her legal anonymity was expiring soon too, which would have opened up the floodgates. So in 2003, Mary launched a successful court case to guarantee lifetime legal anonymity for her and her family, including her future granddaughter. If you're still angry at the fact that Mary Bell's daughter and granddaughter escaped ongoing punishments for her crimes, no, we're not. Why would be? They're not. <laughs> they're completely different people. Then I don't know what to tell you, except that I reckon you've got a promising career in the DPRK's Ministry of Justice. <laughs> Yeah, if you don't know, uh, I mean, as much as we know about North, we don't know about North Korea. Apparently, there are, you know, the internment camps where if you've committed some crime against the state or whatever, they'll ship ship you off to. But not only you, they'll also ship off your children and your children's children. So there's like three generations of punishment for one person committing crime, which is obviously insane. But it's the DPRK, so okay. We in the modern world don't really go in for multi-generational sentences, though, so it's probably for the best that the courts declawed the reporters who were set on shaming Mary Bell for life. She had been unmasked for the last time, and it's thought that she's still alive and well, living out her life somewhere under the name something-something, and that's the way things will stay. I really hope. Uh, but also the courts and the justice system... I really, really, really hope you're still keeping an eye on her because you know who she is and there are people out there who know who she is and I hope they're extremely competent police people. Wrap up. 
Whatever your opinion on the punishments handed out to Mary Bell, I think we can all agree that there are no winners in her story. Our sim- we, we watch, this is the casual criminalist count. There are rarely winners. Our sympathy goes out to the victims, the little kids who never got a chance to grow up, go to school, get married, or have kids of their own. After that, though, it's only right to recognize Mary as a victim in her own right. Because basically, kids don't do this stuff. It takes a massive amount of deeply inflicted pain to turn them towards extreme acts of violence, even if some might have more of a predisposition than others. What I mean is that even if you believe that some people are just born with innate violent inclinations, it's undeniable that with a safe and loving home, the lives of these kids turns out very, very differently. No doubt. Nurture trumps nature in the end. But in Mary's case, she was a child so horrifically treated that she likely forgot what it meant to be kind at all. Today we've covered two stories, really. The first, about a horrible pair of murders. The second, a horrific study of childhood abuse and its consequences. With that in mind, we've dropped some important phone numbers in the description to call if you believe a child you know might be suffering any abuse of any kind. Thanks for doing that, Callum. That will be on YouTube. I'll also read the numbers at the end of this episode for people who are listening. The hotlines are completely anonymous, and I think we'll be covering... Uh, yeah, US and UK, which is the majority of the listenership, and um, I, I'm sure Google will, if you're in a different country, will provide. Thankfully, our attitudes and safeguards have evolved a bit since 1968, so a little bit of whistleblowing can go a long way and might even save a life or two. That's maybe a bit of a heavy note to end on, but you are listening to a show about a child who killed children. Did you expect to finish with a spring in your step? No, I did not. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. Mary Bell's account of a horrific history of sexual abuse arose in a 1998 book by a biographer, Gita Sereny, titled Cries Unheard, The Story of Mary Bell. The book caused a bit of a stir, to say the least. It was revealed that Mary had received payment for the interviews within, which drew the ire of the papers and the government of Tony Blair, who tried to ban it before it went to press. Number two, a quick word on that jailbreaker glossed over earlier. In 1977, Mary was imprisoned at Moorcourt Open Prison at Stoke-on-Trent, which she just decided to leave. Yeah, open prisons are like for super low-risk offenders or like people at the end of their sentences, stuff like that, where you can just wander off. They trust you to stay there because, you know, you probably don't have long on your sentence anyway, and you don't want to go back to real big prison. Uh, it was an open prison after all, so Mary and another inmate just decided to take a little hitchhiking and boozing trip. Police got up with them after a couple of days and slapped their unlucky new boyfriends with charges for harboring fugitives. <laughs> That's unfortunate. Uh, so this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Just let me uh, quickly mention those numbers just in case, you know, uh, social responsibility etc. The NSPCC is the one in the UK and that's 0808 800 5000 and then in the US it is the uh, National Child Abuse Hotline uh, 1800 422 and on that note um, well thank you very much for watching or listening to The Casual Criminalist depending on how you get this show if you are watching on YouTube please do give us a like subscribe to this show uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast if you want to leave us a review that is most welcome thank you for doing that it helps get this show in front of more people which is uh, well much appreciated and thank you for listening